4: When I got to the psych ward, it was it was, it was was worse, you know, than I'd ever imagined a place to be. I really thought I was in hell. And I kept telling myself, because even while you're having delusions, you still feel like you're sane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my sane self was telling me, I've been a good girl my whole life. Why am I in hell right now? How can I escape hell? And that was the psych ward.
5: That's Julia Lukács. At that time in the psych ward, she was just 27 years old. She had no history of mental illness. As she was getting admitted, her husband Mark was sitting out in the waiting room. It was this bland, depressing space, just 8 feet by 10 feet. Green tile floor, a few beaten up vinyl chairs. A sign on the wall warned visitors not to bring in any of the following.
2: Weapons, sharp objects, drugs, alcohol, cigarettes, cameras.
5: It was like visiting a jail. It was the first of three times in a decade that Julia would be put in the psych ward. You wouldn't know what to talk to her today, or to look at her if you saw her walking down the street. You'd see a beautiful Italian woman. Maybe she'd be carrying a baby or two. She'd have this big smile on her face. She wears killer earrings. I only knew about Julia's mental illness because I read Mark's stunning memoir, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward. It was one of the best books that I read last year. Looks can be deceiving. Mental illness hides inside a person and inside a marriage. And for Mark and Julia, it interrupted their lives and their marriage. Over and over again. I visited Mark and Julia this summer at their house. It's nestled in a grove of redwoods across the bay from my own place. There's a hand-painted sign when you walk in the door and another one in their dining room. They both say... We're all in this together. It's true. When it comes to a marriage, we are all in this together through health, through good times, through sickness, and bad times. I'm Joe Piazza. This is Committed. I should say here that you're probably going to hear some baby noises during this episode. Mark and Julia have a four-month-old named Cosimo, and we were passing him back and forth during this interview. He was a very good boy, but sometimes he just wants to be involved.
2: I like to say I kind of fell in love with Julia before I even saw her.
5: It was freshman year at Georgetown, and Mark was setting up his dorm room. The kid down the hall came feverishly running into his room to tell him this really important news.
2: There's this Italian girl who goes to school with us.
5: Now, Mark's just this kid from Delaware, so an Italian girl is like the most glamorous, exotic person he can imagine.
2: When I saw her, I was like, wow, she is drop dead gorgeous, you know, in my little 18 year old mind.
5: Mark had just seen that movie, Life is Beautiful. So now you spoke Italian.
2: I spoke two <laughs> words, Bongiorno, which is good. Hello, princess. And so I basically said, when I saw Julia, after I had met her that first time, that's pretty much all I said to her. It ended up kind of working because when we did see each other at that party, like our first maybe two, three weeks there, she knew me as the guy who yelled out to her. Bongiorno,
5: <laughs> he knew her as something else entirely.
2: And I knew her as the Italian girl that I was already in love with.
5: That night, he walked her to her room and snuck a quick kiss goodnight. To his surprise, she kissed him back. They started dating, and then they were inseparable. It was fun and easy and wonderful. As they were telling me this story, the story of their early days together, I kept thinking of this F. Scott Fitzgerald quote from This Side of Paradise. They slipped briskly into an intimacy from which they never recovered.
4: Yeah, I think we were also very naive, you know, about what life is, you know. And to us, we would just, like, make plans and they would happen. I think through college, we were always uh, Mark and Julia. I don't think we were individual people.
5: After graduation, Julia gets this great job working in fashion in New York. Mark started teaching high school in Baltimore. He didn't know anyone there. He was renting a depressing apartment that looked out over a parking lot. But most of all, he missed being with Julia every day.
4: I I hated every second of it. (laughs) I remember Chinatown buses because that's (laughs) what we were so cheap, we had no money.
5: During that summer, after their first year apart, they would meet for the weekend at Mark's parents' house in Bethany Beach in Delaware. They had a ritual where they'd get up in the morning and Julia would kayak and Mark would paddleboard.
2: I knew pretty soon that when I was going to propose to her. I wanted it to do it in that setting. So I got a ring. I, Julia saw I did. I the, totally because basically I was really scared that if I dropped the box, it was going to sink. So I double Ziploc bagged it. And the first Ziploc bag, I kind of inflated it with air, like I blew into it through a crack (laughs) so that if I dropped it, hopefully it would float. (laughs) So I go out and I've got this like bulky thing in my pocket, trying to be all suave.
4: He wouldn't, he wouldn't (laughs) uh, paddle next to me. He was like, Way out up there. And I was like, hey, like trying to play catch up. I I like, I was like, something's off here. What's going on?
2: Yeah. And I was really nervous. And I left a letter. My family, we were at the beach that day with my family. I left a letter for my family. I left these signs in the car that spelled out, will you marry me? Mm -hmm. Like each family member would hold a letter. When I get back, I'm going to wave and you hold them up.
4: I knew it was coming, but I didn't know when. So they got close to the shore. Mark waved.
2: They held the signs. I showed her the ring. And then, um, yeah, we got engaged. and, And we planned the wedding, and a year later, we got married.
5: They planned this really traditional wedding. Ceremony in the church, reception at the country club. After they cut the cake, Mark walked up to the microphone. For the past few months, he'd had a secret. He'd been secretly learning to play the guitar. He told the crowd, I want to sing my kids to sleep one day. And I want my wife to hear her favorite song on her wedding night. I'm not very good. So bear with me. With that, he played a stumbling off-tempo version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. Two days later, they flew to San Francisco to start a new life together as a married couple. They got a house in the outer sunset just 10 blocks from the beach so Mark could surf. They didn't even care that it's foggy out there like 90% of the time. They got this adorable English bulldog named Goose. Mark writes in his book, I knew that life wasn't supposed to be perfect, but this felt pretty close. At first, Julia thrived in San Francisco, She was driven and ambitious, in fact, the most ambitious person Mark had ever met. And she found a job that she
4: absolutely loved. But suddenly something wasn't right. I would come home and share this with Mark when he got home. And I also stopped wanting to go to work. I would just like get up and be like, I'm not going to work. And Mark is like, what? You're not going to work. What are you talking about?
5: She continued to spiral into crippling anxiety.
4: I
2: have to say, to hear that was, like, really striking for me. I've been with her for nine years at that point, and for truly to say I don't want to go to work is, like,
4: antithetical to everything I know about her. Yeah, Yeah. and you've never felt like this before. No, I never felt like this before. And then the biggest uh, symptom was that I stopped sleeping, and that was the scariest. Nights are long when you are up, the entire night, and your partner is asleep. She
2: was clearly losing engagement with just kind of her overall world. And then she started keeping a journal and was writing this stuff about, like, this little girl that's inside that's trying to get out, but the world's, like, keeping her in.
5: Julia went to the psychiatrist who prescribed sleeping pills and antidepressants. Julia had no intention of taking them, though. She was tough and thought she could get through this on her own, but she filled the scripts anyway. When she brought them home and set them on the table, she joked that maybe Mark should hide them. Since she was depressed, maybe she'd take them all. Mark had no idea what to do or how to handle this.
2: So I kept trying to remind her of all the things we could be grateful for and that there wasn't all this need to be so scared and nervous. And so looking back I wasn't really that supportive. Mm-hmm. I was trying to be supportive in the way that I thought I could, but it wasn't, you right. know? Instead it was I think a little dismissive and even impatient.
5: Mm-hmm. But if you've never seen this before and you don't know where it's going.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Um, exactly.
5: Then I, th- I think that a lot of people think that they're like, "Oh, it's a mood." It's something, like, I don't, I know that this is different. I know it's strange, right. but...
2: I thought it was just adjusting to this new work environment. Right. And we were getting ready to start thinking about having children. So maybe it was adjusting to the concept of motherhood and not at any point thinking, like, this is psychosis. Julia has a major mental illness. Like, I, that never crossed my mind at all.
5: Things kept escalating. One morning, Julia woke up and called in sick for the third day in a row. She lined up the orange bottles of pills and studied them. Then she shook them out into the palm of her hand to test their weight. She arranged them into patterns on the table and thought about taking all of them. The diagnosis of depression and the threat of suicide had become very, very real. That's when Julia's dad, Romeo, flew out to California.
2: He was home with her during the day while she wasn't going to work
5: and Julia's anxiety just continued to grow. She didn't sleep at all, she stopped eating. The color drained from her skin. Mark wrote that it was like watching her vanish right in front of his eyes. Julia began having even more delusions. One morning she told Mark that she'd talked to God. God had told her that everything was going to be all right. Now the two of them were raised Catholic, so the God talk was a little weird but not scary. Then the next day, Julia said she'd talk to the devil. The devil told Julia that everything was not going to be all right and that she might as well just give up on everything.
2: But what was scary is that the devil was telling her that she shouldn't be alive anymore. And my sense of things was like, as soon as I heard that she was considering that life wasn't worth living anymore, that's when I really panicked.
5: And then one morning, Romeo, Julia's dad, woke Mark up.
2: He shook me awake and was like, we need to take Julia to the hospital. She's talking about ending her life. We tried to convince her to come to the hospital with us. She wouldn't. Me and my father-in-law, this six-foot-seven, former Olympic water polo player, we sort of like looked at each other and realized we were going to have to carry her into the car. We picked her up and she was thrashing and screaming and we were both crying and she's, like, literally holding on to the doorknob, like, don't take me out. And then we got her in the car. She was shotgun. I was driving. My father-in-law was in the back. And as we were driving through Golden Gate Park around a bend, Julia tried to open the door to basically jump out. And so I had to pull over, slam the door. Basically, my father-in-law wrapped his arms around her then to keep her in the car till we got there. And then she wouldn't get out of the car when we got there. And, the like, the admitting nurse said that we would have to call the police on her And they would have to arrest her and then march her in to admit her for, like, against her will. And I was like, this was, I had a flip phone and I I literally had 911 on it. And I was like, Julia, I am going to call the police. You need help. I don't want to do this, but I'm going to do this. She, at that moment, got out, walked herself in.
4: I mean, first I have to say that I had no understanding of mental illness. I'd never... Been Depressed before, I'd never taken pills before, so the concept of a psych ward to me was like from the movies. Like that's what I had seen. You know, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. That's why I was holding for dear life when my pa- my my dad and Mark tried to drag me uh, from the house because I was trying to avoid at all cost to go to this psych ward, which was to me like an unknown.
2: And then it was like being on the most terrifying escalator ride where I had no control. We sat for hours and they asked all these questions and do all these assessments. And I'm like, had no idea where I was going. Where, where was this the end destination? What was going to come out of this? And ultimately with that first time, they actually sent her home because she promised that if she felt suicidal, she would say something first.
5: Mark was hoping for more guidance from professionals. He felt abandoned by the people who were supposed to be helping them. All he knew was that Julia's safety was now his responsibility, and he took that as a reaffirmation of their wedding vows. When they got home from the hospital, Mark grabbed a pen and a journal and goose, and they walked down to the beach and repeated every promise they'd ever made to one another over the course of their relationship. They promised to be open and honest, to keep each other safe if they ever felt scared and alone. They rolled up their pant legs and waded into the freezing cold Pacific Ocean. Mark pulled out his phone and snapped a picture of Julia. This is the day you beat this thing, he told her. This is a picture of the day you beat this thing. Julia looked at him. Through sickness and health, Mark, she said, that's right now. We're going to take a quick break here. We'll be right back. days after Mark was so convinced they were through the worst of it, Julia was even more delusional. She couldn't stop talking about the devil, talking about ending things. This time, Julia didn't fight them when they took her back to the hospital. The doctors hooked her up to a drip of Ativan. They waited and waited and waited some more. Julia looked at Mark at one point. She whispered to him, Mark, I am the devil.
2: A different doctor saw her and said, she needs to be admitted for a psychotic episode. And so they ended up transporting her to a different hospital. And that began life in the psych ward.
4: When I got to the psych ward, it was, it was, it was worse, you know, than I'd ever imagined a place to be. I really thought I was in hell. And I kept telling myself, because even while you're having delusions, you still feel like you're sane. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so my sane self was telling me, I've been a good girl my whole life. Why am I in hell right now? How can I escape hell? And that was a psych ward. People going around that you just didn't feel safe. I was next to this 400 pound man and I thought I, w- I was gonna like get attacked in the middle of the night. They actually had put me, since I was so psychotic, they actually had put me right next to the nurse's station because they thought I was like the biggest threat on, on the floor. <laughs> The delusions were really strong at the time and they numbed me with a lot of drugs. I didn't know all the names of what they pumped me with during the psych ward, but I was not in control of my life and like, you know, I like to be in control and I like to call the shots. And this was a time where I found myself in a dark place that I didn't know existed. Not for me, not for anyone. I
2: remember it was was so goofy. The Giants were making a playoff run and their pitcher, Brian Wilson, had a mohawk. So I had shaved a mohawk. I remember walking down the hall, looking at myself in the mirror with a mohawk in the hospital and being like, my life as I knew it is completely gone. Like Julia is in the psychiatric hospital and here I am with a mohawk, (laughs) a kid, no idea what's going on, except that I love this person and nothing's ever going to be the same. I was allowed to visit Julia for 90 minutes a day and I spent, if I was not asleep, I was researching. I was calling people. I was researching like these ridiculous hospitals like in Southern California that basically I would have spent all our life savings on that I thought would be like the rehab place for her because I didn't know how long she was going to be in there. And then I would go see her and everything was Completely non-understandable because she'd be hysterically mad at me and afraid that I was she was contagious and I couldn't come near her, or she'd be super sweet, or she would be comatose, or like every visit was so unpredictable and different.
5: And did it, you feel totally just out of control? That completely you, you had no control over. It? I had
2: no control over anything. I felt like this life that we had carved, where we felt very happy and comfortable and in control was now just like things happening to her and by extension to me, and I didn't have much of a say in any of it.
5: The doctors told Mark that Julia was clearly psychotic and delusional.
4: I had to kind of try to find the surface again, you know, swim up to the top. I was very deep, deep, deep in the ocean. Mm
5: -hmm. And that's
4: kind of like how I would describe it. And I was trying to swim, and I'm a good swimmer, but I, I, I couldn't get near the surface. I was still way down at the dark blue part of the ocean. I was just trying to survive. And I was extremely suicidal. And I was trying to find ways to kill myself because I thought that knowing what I knew of the psych ward um, and living with a mental illness, I couldn't live this life anymore. <laughs> this is not what you're picturing you know, uh, your 27-year-old self to go through. like. You know, Mark mentioned we were starting to think about having a family. You know, like in my life, there was were, <laughs> just like a checklist of things that, the, that one does at this age. And it's getting a promotion and, you know, moving to a bigger house and, you know, having a baby. It was not get admitted to a psych ward.
5: After 23 days, the doctors decided that Julia was okay enough to go home and enter an outpatient program. Julia was still fragile. She was cautious. The psychosis remained like a bad fever that came and went on a whim. She was discharged with an antidepressant called Lexapro and two antipsychotics, Zyprexa and Geodon. The pills caused an additional tension because Julia was still a suicide risk. That meant that Mark found and changed up hiding spots for the pills every single day.
4: He would hide them in, like, shoes and closets and everywhere. Again, because he was worried that I, that I would do something and, um, and I didn't feel safe having the pills myself. So um, I actually appreciated that um, about him, that he took the time to do that for me.
5: Julia's psychosis turned into a very, very deep depression and she became fixated on suicide. One night she asked Mark, if I die, will you promise me that you will find a new wife so you can still be happy? She was also fixated on one particular way of killing herself, jumping off the Golden Gate
4: Bridge. What would be the less painful way to kill yourself? The Golden Gate Bridge would be like an instant gratification where, you know, you know, I would hit um, the water and I would just be gone, you know, and that's it. So did you feel did you feel supported by Mark
5: during that time?
4: You know, I think he did his best to support me in the ways that he could, but it it wasn't what I needed because he didn't also understand mental illness. A lot of times I think he learned to listen more. Like when I would go into ramblings about feeling suicidal, I think he learned that I needed him to listen versus fix things, which is also, again, part of his personality. He wants to help. He wants to fix, fix things, but that's not what someone who's suicidal needs. They need someone that you can ramble on for an hour or two about how you would commit suicide and they would just listen.
5: That's why Suicide Hotlines exist. Yeah, Yeah. that is. I've called. They're great. They'll (laughs) listen. listen. I do have to
2: say, though, you need to make sure the person's safe while you're listening. I had to understand that Julia was in the room with me. She had nothing within arm's reach that could hurt her. So therefore her feelings were miserable they were terrible I hated hearing them but they weren't actually going to kill her I didn't have to actually fix them because in that moment physically she was safe that that I think is important to clarify though right because mm-hmm. like if someone's suicidal just listening isn't going to necessarily keep them safe you have to ensure their safety first and foremost
5: And then after about 9 months life started to get back to normal the medicine began to work the psychosis was gone the depression slowly began to fade away. Did you guys think that this was all then behind you?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, we thought that it was behind us. We had a diagnosis that made it look pretty optimistic that it was behind us. And I think we tried to live like it was behind us. But the truth is, is that we both had these gaping wounds that we didn't know how to talk to each other about. After this nine-month stretch, I finally was allowed to...
4: Break down,
2: Be vulnerable yeah. in front of Julia and experience pain and let her see that I was suffering. And she didn't want anything to do with that. Because she's like, I just had the worst year of my life, dude. Mm-hmm. Can we just like have fun, please? Mm-hmm. I was like, I would love to do that. But I have been burying my feelings around you, the person my closest confidant, and I need to be able to just let them out now.
4: Yeah, we were not on the same page. <laughs> uh, I just felt like he was cons- constantly moping around and I'm like, what is wrong with you? Like, I should be the one. I just got through like psych ward, like, you know, feeling suicidal and you're now like moping around. I just wanted to just live my life and and let him deal with whatever he was, you know, trying to deal with. And And I know that sounds like Mean and horrible, but it was also survival for me. I just needed to survive and keep surviving, and and I couldn't deal with him now not feeling good.
2: And of course, I felt horribly rejected as a result. Because
4: you're
5: like I I did so much to try to. Do you remember
2: what I literally just did for the last nine months? And now I you can't even sit down and talk to me. You know, you're just going to disappear. So there was like so much resentment. I think also. It started to come out that the missteps I had made in caregiving that I thought were good intention but weren't necessarily helpful, Julia started to express some of those. And that was really hard to hear too. Like what? Well, like that you felt like I micromanaged your life and I planned everything for you, right? And I was like, well, if you set the plans, we would have done nothing or you would have gone and killed yourself. So of course I planned the day. And I would get really defensive just like I just sounded right now. It was truly, we just couldn't talk about something that we so desperately needed to talk about.
5: They needed a complete reboot. To do that, they put their life on hold again in order to try to move forward. They booked tickets to Southeast Asia.
2: We had to rely on each other and be in different environments constantly and also beautiful environments. So that allowed us to do new things and sort of rely on each other in a new way, which was good. We also started to actually question, like, now that we've been through this together, are we in fact compatible or not? Were we just sort of in puppy love for so long, we didn't really question our compatibility, which is a hard question to have to face as a couple.
4: We had a big talk um, in the hotel in Thailand about, like, can we get through this? Like, can can we do this and can we get through this? Do we want to stay together? I thought the room was spinning. I remember sitting there and, like, I'm asking him the question, and I know what, he, what I want him to say, which is like, I don't feel this way. I love you forever, you know? And then he starts talking, and it's like sharing kind of what I was feeling too inside, and the room just starts spinning around. And I, I'm like, oh, it's, this is just heavy stuff, you know? This yeah. is like really hard to hear. Your partner that you have loved since you were 18 years old has doubts, but he has doubts that you have as well.
2: Yeah, sometimes asking the question feels so scary, but then it becomes liberating because we both knew we were thinking about it. We both knew what our answers were. And so this question that I was wondering, that I was afraid to talk to Julia about, that she was wondering and was afraid to talk to me about, we both knew it was on our mind, but we both knew we wanted to try to make it work.
4: I think that gave us a slice of hope. This is something that we both wanted. It's going to be... Really hard, but it was worth fighting for, and that we were not ready to give up, at at least not there. And we were not ready to give up yet.
5: Julia wrote a blog post at the end of that trip that I want to read to you right now. I am a better person having suffered through a mental illness. I'm a more loving daughter, wife, and I know one day mother. I wouldn't change a single thing. Mark, I'm looking forward to our many journeys in life. Holding hands, of course. Thank you for being by my side in sickness and in health, through good times and the bad. You are my everything. It's time for a quick break here. When we get back, Mark and Julia talk about starting a family. The following
1: is a high-five moment from HighFiveCasino.com. Welcome to Burger King, do you like a high apple pie today? Yes, yes, yeah, I won! Woohoo! So that's a yes on the apple pie? I just went big time playing High Five Casino on my phone! Real cash prizes, free daily rewards, over 1,200 games, yeah. So yes or no
0: on the apple pie? Woo! I won again! I'll take that as a yes. Drive around. Have you had your High Five moment today? Only at HighFiveCasino.com. High Five Casino is a social
1: casino. No purchase necessary. Void. We're prohibited. Play responsibly. Conditions apply. See website for details. High
6: Five, high five Casino. casino. Timon's Direct has done it again. This month only, get ready for an offer you
1: Have you ever wondered what it would be like to have supervision, enhanced hearing, extraordinary reflexes, to be, dare we say, superhuman? Well, Roku's new Pro Series TV can't do any of that for you. But with a 4K screen, side-firing speakers, and a blazing fast refresh rate, it'll sure feel like it. Elevate your entertainment using all your favorite apps like iHeart and play all your music, radio, and podcasts
0: with the new Roku Pro Series. Your senses aren't better your TV is baseball fans.
4: On meds. I had a really great uh, psychiatrist. I felt that I had my team, and um, I was, I get just turned 29 um, at the time. And this is something that I always had dreamed about being a mom. You know, it was something that I that I hoped, we started trying. And the next month, you know, I was at Lucky's and I was like, I'm gonna get this test. And he's like, dude, we just started like, let's not put this kind of pressure on ourselves. And I'm like, well, I think I'm pregnant. And he's like, no, there's like no way. You're just gonna feel disappointed. He wanted to keep my anxiety down. He was putting away groceries in, in the in, in the kitchen, and I was in the bathroom. I'm like, I'm just gonna take it, whatever. Costs a lot of money to take these tests, but I'm just gonna take one. Um, and so I took a test, uh, and I and I saw the lines, and I came out, and I was like, we're pregnant. He was like, so in shock and disbelief and disbelief. I don't know what went in his mind. Like he was probably so excited, you know, but he was like in total disbelief. He's like, give me that stick. He looks at the stick and he's like, give me the instructions. Cause I don't know what two lines mean, if that means pregnant or not pregnant. Like he wouldn't believe me. So I gave him the instructions. He like reread them like four times and then looks at the stick, looks at the instructions like we're pregnant. Duh. Yeah, we are. We are.
5: Were you nervous during the pregnancy that the psychosis was going to come back?
4: I was actually on Prozac um, during my pregnancy. Usually, you know, right now I'm bipolar, so I'm on lithium right now. But I wasn't on lithium because at the time the psychiatrist said, you can't be on lithium and be pregnant. So they took me off the lithium. But also
2: they didn't think you had bipolar at that time. They thought you had major depression. And so an antidepressant made sense. Right. So to
4: them, they thought the Prozac would be, would cover me and would be safe. And, and so of course I trusted my psychiatrist and and their plan and while well, I'm on meds, so I should be fine. You know, I should be fine through this pregnancy. Like I didn't, I didn't think I was going to have a relapse.
2: And I have to say that Julia was more carefree and in love with herself than I've ever seen her while she was pregnant. I was like, this is amazing how What a transformation, you know, that this being pregnant became like this, like the greatest boost of adrenaline and endorphins that she's ever experienced.
5: Julia's water broke when she was in the bathtub. Mark was at a soccer game and he rushed right home. Julia labored for 27 hours and with one big final push, their son Jonas arrived. They decided to baptize Jonas in New York with a priest Julia had in high school. Walking down Lexington Avenue that day, Mark was so impressed with his wife. This is what he wrote about her. Julia looked like her old self. The self-assured, sassy, quick-to-laugh woman I'd fallen in love with. Her radiant smile was hard-earned, which only made it more magnetic. Soon after the baptism, Julia went back to work.
4: I remember... My first days, going into work, being extremely excited, and then coming home and realizing I wasn't seeing Jonas at all. I was leaving at 7 in the morning, getting home at 7. He was asleep, and that gave me a lot of anxiety. And then my lunch, I wasn't really eating because I was breastfeeding. You know, I was pumping during my lunch break. So it was just this constant, really busy routine Super high stress from the get-go. And I felt a lot of pressure because I felt like I was a breadwinner of the family. I was going to support Mark and oh. staying home. And I needed to do this. Like, I needed to do this for the family. And again, that sort of pressure... With the anxiety, with being five months postpartum and still missing my baby, I just started not sleeping again. And once I see that, I know that is a real issue for me, the no sleeping, and that it could lead to another episode. So I contacted my therapist at the time, contacted my psychiatrist. It took
5: Julia six weeks to go psychotic the first time. The second time, it only took four days. So did you go to the hospital willingly this time?
4: This time, actually, I did um, because my delusions were very positive. This time, I thought that heaven was a place on earth. So it was like everything and everyone I met was going to teach me a lesson. And I remember being in the ER and uh, breastfeeding Jonas, and that was going to be my last time.
5: This hospitalization was different from the last one. This time, Julia had a baby at home, and she wanted to get home to him.
4: So everything I did was to try and get home to Jonas and be with Jonas. Uh, But I was still very delusional. But at the same time, since this was my second hospitalization and I knew a little bit more what to expect from a psych ward, I wasn't as scared.
5: Julia desperately didn't want Jonas, who was just a tiny baby
4: at the time, to come to the psych ward. Didn't want him to see that place. And for whatever reason, I felt like, that could harm him uh, in the long run, that experience. So I think that was my most sane thought.
2: Yeah. So when Julia was hospitalized the second time, my initial reaction was to go on muscle memory. There was a sense of comfort. We'd been here before.
5: But Mark needed the doctor to remind him that they hadn't been here before. That's the thing. Things really were different this time around. This time they had a baby to take care of, and that's what the doctor told him.
2: Yes, you need to care for Julia. You also need to care for Jonas. They are going to need very different things, but you need to give it to both of them. So I would say the second episode was probably the one where I felt the most defeated. Like, I'm not up for this after all. I don't have enough energy and love for both of these people. By default, had to trust the process a little bit more for Julia I wasn't researching all day, calling hourly, because I was with a baby instead. And having the baby also became a coping mechanism for me. And so it was like my inoculation against my grief, you know, that this was happening again, to be able to come home and be with my little boy.
5: The diagnosis was different this time. And that's the thing about mental illness The definitions are constantly shifting and changing, and it's really hard to figure out what's actually wrong with you. Julia was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, a mental illness characterized by soaring highs and crippling lows, both of which Julia experienced as negative. Her mania fast-tracked into psychosis, her lows into suicidal thoughts. The doctors told her she was going to have to be on lithium for the rest of her life. On Julia's 32nd day in the hospital, she told the doctor she wanted to go home to her son and her life. They released her the next day.
4: I wanted so badly to be like a good mother, but I just, in a way, was so preoccupied with my thoughts and uh, and just being on so many drugs that I couldn't be present with my baby, you know? Even just changing a diaper and sitting with him giving him a bottle was like a huge chore and a huge task for for me. And I remember so much Mark coming into the room and kind of interrupting me and my flow and what I was doing and being like, oh, I'll help you with this, you know, let me finish here, it looks like you're struggling, you know? And I appreciated it, but I also didn't because I was like, well, then I'm never going to get better if you're going to enable, you know, if you're going to be that kind of parent with me. Like, I need to to, to try this and do this on my own, you know, like, because this is like, I am his mom and I'll always be his mom, regardless of, you know, the number of episodes I'm going to have.
5: How was your relationship with Mark after you got out this time?
4: I mean, I always feel like after any episode, it went back to that patient um, caregiver. And now, you know, Mark was very much taking care of me. And then now having Jonas on top of that. So he was taking care of two of us and not mm, just one person. So we were trying to survive with this, this new dynamic, which was that I was still very sick because every time after hospitalization, I become suicidal. So I was suicidal and I felt like I was not independent, that I had to rely hundred percent on my husband to take me to the hospital and to the doctor's appointments and take the medicine and all of that. And And I felt like a failure in terms of being a mom.
2: In fact, when Julia did come home, she, would, she was so heavily medicated. She'd sleep right through the night feedings, but I would go in there and I wouldn't go back to her. I'd stay in the room with him and I'd sleep in there with him because it just felt so much better. And so it was this, it was putting way too much on a baby, but it was like my escape. And he was like my way to still not go just totally down a black hole of like anxiety, worrying, caregiving, sadness. But I know that I let myself be pulled more towards the baby because he felt so much more vulnerable.
4: Weren't you like, I'm kind of sick of you always being the hero of this story? That's a great question. Um, yeah, I wanted to be my own hero by this point. I was, I felt like I was getting stronger and I, I felt like I was a, you know, a survivor and I could take care of myself and, and also get better. So I think, yeah, by this point I didn't want him to be the hero.
2: And I was actually okay with that.
4: Yeah. And I just think, uh, like a, a good relationship does need to feel a little bit more equal, you know, in the end. Like it was just so not balanced when I was sick and and it couldn't be balanced because, you know, he was very much my caregiver and I was very much a patient who couldn't take care of myself. But like once I started getting better, like I I wanted that autonomy and I wanted to feel like we were more equal in terms of how we took care of our son, the time that, and effort that we put into that relationship and to each other. I think for all marriages, that should be a goal where you just put in a lot and the other person puts in a lot. And I never wanted anyone to look at us and, and know us, like not just physical, but like mental and everything, and to think, why is he with her?
2: After the second episode, Julie and I worked together to restore that balance so that if it did come back, she was center stage.
5: They created a new plan, kind of a manifesto for what would happen if Julia was hospitalized again.
2: In retrospect, it sounds so obvious, mm-hmm. but when you're in the thick of it, it's so not obvious. But it's like you need to trust the person who's experiencing the symptoms, even if they're talking about delusions, even if they're talking about hurting themselves. You need to trust that they still know themselves. And so in between episode two, not knowing episode three was coming, but basically after episode two, Joe like, look, you need to know that these things don't feel good to me. So if we have to cross that bridge again, I need you to stand up for these things. Like for example, this specific pill, she hates it. Mm-hmm. It's an effective antipsychotic. It's, it suppresses the psychosis quickly, but she hates it. So, When I'm saying that, you need to hear that, even if I'm delusional. So we sort of like ironed out the details of what a relapse would look like before it happened so that she could feel like if she was in there, her partner was actually advocating for her. And the biggest issue became around Jonas. Like episode three, when he was two and a half, she wanted him to visit so badly. She would call me multiple times throughout the day asking to bring him.
4: But this was just during the delusions because we had set the plan.
2: But before she had said, there's no way Jonas should visit me in a psych ward. It's not a place for a child. And so every time she would ask, I would just remind her of that. And I think, imagine if we hadn't had those conversations and if multiple times a day I had to tell my wife, you can't see your son. Like how damaging that would be for our relationship. That could potentially be a cancer that could literally rip our relationship apart, I think.
5: Forever. Forever. Yeah. One of the scariest things they've learned is that this really isn't a one-and-done kind of thing.
2: This was a lifelong condition, and that's why we started to plan for it. Like, we know these all happen in the fall, mm-hmm. so we need to be realistic about what the fall looks like for us. If we talk about our anxiety, that makes it grow. Mm-hmm. But I think we're both realistic enough to say
5: that, like, We're crossing our fingers about this fall. Julia relapsed that third time. After she recovered, they had another baby, Cosimo. He's the one you've been hearing this entire episode.
2: The last four months to see Julia's embrace of motherhood has been one of the best things I've ever seen in my life. And it makes me really optimistic. With our new baby, I'm not going to work next year. And one of the reasons we think that's the right call is because we know she already had a postpartum relapse. Mm -hmm. If we had two working parents and a postpartum relapse with two children, that is a truly impossible situation. Mm -hmm. But instead, this is just a buffer of confidence. When she gets home, I'm going to give him to her immediately and she can spend as much time as she wants and not have to worry about the frenzy just like causing more stress. I feel like we both feel more in control of the narrative. You know? Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean the illness may or may not come back, but there's this little boost of maybe it won't because now we feel like we're more in the driver's seat. And so how can we still thrive? Julia as a mother, a working professional, a wife, me as a husband, a teacher and a writer and a dad, like how can we thrive in that knowing that this is part of it?
5: And Julia, do you feel safer now because you guys did come up with that plan together?
4: I don't know about if safer, but I just feel like having a plan and knowing that this could happen again, I'm just not as scared. And that life is still, you know, worth living, whether I have a fourth or fifth or sixth hospitalization, you know, and yeah, like, like if I had like committed suicide after that first episode, I would have never met my two sons, you know? So, um, so yeah, I just, yeah, I feel really blessed actually.
5: This summer, Mark and Julia took a little getaway together. Three days in Italy, no kids. I love that they did this. I want to do it for
4: my own marriage. said to him, let's pretend to be newlyweds, you know? Let's pretend like we just got married yesterday. Let's hold hands and let's go through this town in these three days as if we were just now in love, just now really starting our journey together. And it was just so fun, you know, to bring that sort of newness and excitement to your relationship 18 years later, and having been through so much together, you know? So, yeah. I love that. I'm gonna try to get Nick to do it.
2: You basically just set the intention and you just do it. Uh, <laughs> And I'm like, well, let's set the intention every day.
3: (laughs) (laughs) This episode was hosted and reported by Joe Piazza. Special thanks to Mark and Julia Lukacs. You can pick up a copy of Mark's memoir, My Lovely Wife in the Psych Ward, wherever books are sold. It was produced and edited by Ramsey Yunt and Tyler Kling, with mixing by Tristan McNeil. The executive producers are Joe Piazza, Wayne Ticketer, and Will Pearson. Theme song and music by Tristan McNeil, with additional music by Kevin McLeod. For comments, suggestions, or to be part of the show, give us a call at 404-996-1173. That's 404-996-1173. If you would like to receive more information regarding the signs or treatment of mental illness, please visit the National Alliance on Mental Illness website at nami.org. You can grab a copy of Joe's new book, Charlotte Walsh Likes to Win, on Amazon or wherever books are sold. Committed with Joe Piazza has been a production of the House Stuff Works family, produced in our studios located in Atlanta, Georgia.
6: High Five Casino. High Five Casino is a social casino with real prizes and big Vegas hits at highfivecasino.com